0: Hey, friends, and welcome to this episode of the camby Bible College Curiosity Project. I'm James, the dean of Cambi Bible College, as always, super pumped to have you with us. Uh, today's episode, we are talking with Professor Nijay Gupta of Portland Seminary. He's fantastic and a strong proponent of the full inclusion of women in leadership ministry, a position known as egalitarianism. This is uh, The issue of women in leadership ministry, of course, has been relatively divisive in church history, and I found N.J. to be not only incredibly learned, um, understanding a lot of the issues surrounding some of the key biblical texts, but also the historical, cultural, and societal backgrounds in which they occur, to really help us get flavor and nuance for what the issues are all about. So this is, some of uh, the conversation here is a little more technical than what we normally get into, but I have found it to be incredibly worthwhile And whether or not you believe in women in leadership ministry, I encourage you to give this episode a listen, to engage with it. You're welcome to email me some questions or responses that you may have. But it's a core value of one of the things that we have here at CBC. Our mission is to help you learn to love and lead like Jesus, to be able to be effective in life and ministry contexts. And we are huge and proud supporters of all of the female alumni and students that we've had the privilege of investing into and want to make sure that within the context of this Biblical Higher Education Institute that especially our female students are able to understand the biblical and cultural issues surrounding uh, this particular topic and are able to minister out of a sense of great clarity and confidence and ultimately effectiveness for the glory of God and the good of others. So I encourage you to take a listen. Uh, A couple other things to note for you, Uh, fall classes are available. Now on our website at cambybiblecollege.org, I encourage you to go there and check out the new opportunities we have coming up for this fall. It's an incredible uh, group of classes led by some amazing faculty members. I cannot wait for you guys to be able to meet these trustworthy guides to life and ministry, to be able to engage with the, the biblical text and part of a meaningful community transformed by the Holy Spirit and falling more in love with Jesus. That's what we're about here at Canby Bible College. Oh, and by the way, did I mention you don't have to go into debt? That's right, no student loan debt here at CBC. Everything is $100 per credit hour. You can graduate with a degree from us for a little over $6,000, which is a fantastic deal. Check us out, canbybiblecollege.org. Enjoy this episode with Professor Nijay Gupta of Portland Seminary. Professor Nije Gupta, Portland Seminary, thank you for joining us on the Camby Bible College Curiosity Project. Very grateful to have you here. You are a professor of New Testament studies here, um, but give us a little bit of a background about how you came into the role of academia here in the evangelical tradition.
1: Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. So um, I'll be brief, but I grew up in North Central Ohio, uh, Ashland, Ohio, uh, born and raised um, I became a Christian as a teenager through my brother. He became a Christian through Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, I was immediately on fire for the Lord. I wanted to be a missionary. I did some missions work in Guatemala. Um, I just had a zeal and passion for growing in my faith and um, just wanted to serve God with all my heart. Uh, I ended up going to um, a public college and studying uh, classics and marketing. So interesting uh, yep. pair of, of subjects, but they've both been very helpful in my career. I was heavily involved in campus ministry. I did missions work in Eastern Europe, um, but as I encountered various Christian groups that used the Bible, I felt like they were very selective in which parts of the Bible they use. Genesis, jump straight to Romans or Gospel of John, uh, and you left out, and they left out all these things like Leviticus and 2nd Chronicles and what in the world are these books for? So I just had this appetite and hunger, I want to study the Bible. So I went to seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary in uh, Massachusetts for a few reasons. One is they're really big on biblical languages and I just through classic study I fell in love with Greek. I want to learn Hebrew, I want to learn Aramaic and all the biblical languages that can help me better study the Bible. Um, They're also really focused on discipleship, and I was involved with the Navigators uh, Collegiate Ministry, and I was really interested in learning more about discipleship. Had a wonderful uh, four years of study at Gordon-Conwell. I met my wife, Amy, who was a a student there, and we can pick up on that conversation later because I I did not believe in women in ministry um, when I went to seminary, and then I met my wife. And she was studying to be uh, uh, for a Master of Divinity and interested in ministry, and I had to rethink some things. Um, We had our first child there. Uh, I I had this hunger to combine a heart for pastoral ministry with an academic study of the Bible in the context of a seminary. So I went on to the University of Durham to do my PhD. Durham is famous for a couple of things at that time. One is N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham, which was a big draw for me. Second one, if you're not an N.T. Wright fan, is it was a Harry Potter filming site. So, kind of a fun, uh, fun experience there uh, with some of these famous uh, scenes and settings from Harry Potter. Had a wonderful three years there. My son was born there, my second child. Since then, we've traveled around and lived in different places. We lived in Ohio. We lived in Seattle. We lived in Philadelphia. We lived in Rochester, New York. But we've settled down. We had our third child in Seattle. We settled down here in Portland, Oregon. I've had a wonderful experience At Portland Seminary, I really see my job as coming alongside training, equipping, and supporting pastors and Christian leaders and future Bible scholars.
0: I really appreciate the connection between the work of the Academy, which can sometimes seem so esoteric, so minute, and the way that you're forcing it into the conversation of how ministry is played out on a day-to-day basis and making the work that you do accessible towards the kind of layperson like me who's, you know, working with people primarily more than, say, the original texts, certainly. Um, I want to go back to that note that you made there as you first met your wife, Amy. You, we had, in a previous conversation, we were talking about how early on one of your big influences was John Piper, um, who, on the whole stance of women in ministry, is a strong complementarian, someone who believes that men and women are equal but have God-given designs in church and home life. And so leadership positions are uniquely assigned to men inside that, inside that theological context. Tell us a little bit about how you went from, from a position like that to where you are today. Tell us a little bit about that road that you traveled.
1: Well, you know, when I went to college, I had only been a Christian for a little bit of time. I didn't understand theology, theologians, systematic theology. During college, as many of my friends did, I read... Uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Sure, a classic. Yep, and um, I kind of got into that world of, you know, what what's now kind of the Gospel Coalition, um, which is John Piper and, and some of those writers, and I just assumed that if you were a firm believer in Scripture, uh, a very serious Christian that wanted to study theology, as far as I knew, this was really the only thing out there. I had no idea there was a Thomas Oden somewhere in the world I had no idea there was all these other theologies. This was all that was in the Christian bookstore. There was a Christian bookstore near campus, and I would go there, and every month I would buy a book, and they would have many of these kinds of offerings by Piper, and um, and and other figures within his kind of s- similar thought world, and um, I I was really attracted. To his Christian hedonism concept, sure. which, yep. which is based on the Westminster Confession mm-hmm. and um, from this Reformed Calvinistic tradition. I loved how academic he was, yeah. how he cared about what the Greeks said. Um, I loved his passion. I actually mentioned to you, James, I drove 14 hours from Cincinnati, Ohio to Dallas, Texas to hear him speak in chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary. I was captivated, but um, I assumed if he's right in this, in, in this one thing, which is Christian hedonism or missions, or biblical hermeneutics, then he must be right in everything.
0: Sure, kind of a because, package deal.
1: Absolutely, because he's such a compelling, thoughtful person, and um, and so many people backed him, and and um, he could explain every passage that uh, on virtually every subject, and so as far as I knew, it was this was the truth, and there was only one truth, and. And Piper had it, so I went to seminary in a similar style of tradition as Piper. This kind of uh, Puritan-esque reform tradition. Uh, You know, if if we have a patron saint at Gordon Conwell, I think it's um, Jonathan Edwards. Sure. Mm -hmm. We we almost all of us read his collected works, which is a massive, massive, big couple of books. And so I just assume there's one way of looking at things, Um, and I just assumed that people on the other side, whatever side that is, weren't taking the Bible seriously, um, weren't studying the Bible. They came with, a, with an agenda. They came with a cultural or liberal agenda. Um, and so I, I kind of had my guard up against anything else.
0: So when you look at that from that place that you started there, having a strong appreciation for somebody who's got real impeccable credentials, somebody who's been faithfully serving Jesus and advancing the church for his entire career, and somebody like Piper and a lot of the people who were with him and grew to him especially. What did it take to say, well, wait a minute, maybe they might be, maybe there's another way to read these particular set of texts around this issue?
1: Right. Well, um, you know, a lot of this happened in seminary at Gordon-Conwell. We had coexisting in one seminary, uh, people that were firm complementarians, and people that were firm egalitarians, and also people that were unsure and kind of in the middle somewhere.
0: And just for the folks in the back, in case you're unclear with the complementarian versus egalitarian, do you have like a quick summary of what each of those camps represent?
1: Yeah, complementarians would say, um, I think as you mentioned earlier, that men and women are are equal in value. Mm -hmm but um, men have been given authority to teach and lead over women, and women have not been given that authority. They provide supporting roles in ministry. They can do things, but they can't teach and exercise authority over men, and often it goes, not always, but often what goes with that is submission in the house as well. Egalitarians believe that um, the Bible indicates that men and women are equal in value and have equal opportunity uh, and authority for leadership if they're gifted by God for those roles. And same thing in the house often egalitarians also believe that in marriage, in the household, Christians are called to mutual submission, respectful mutual submission and co-leadership as opposed to there being kind of quote unquote gender roles based that, that uh, focus on authority of one and, not, and lesser authority of the other. I see. Okay,
0: so thank you. Moving on, complementarians versus egalitarians.
1: So we had we had these different groups, and, you know, my mindset going in was this group is exegetically strong and right and compelling, and the other group is um, agenda-driven, culture-driven, whatever. Um, what really changed began that process was the way that all my professors talked about and respected Certain interpreters of the Bible, like Gordon Fee, Ben Witherington, Craig Keener, um, these these are respected Bible scholars. You can kind of look them up if you want. But they're are respected Bible scholars, who are doctrinally conservative. They trust the whole Bible. They don't say, "Oh, this this text isn't important" or "this text isn't you know uh, true." They respect the, the whole authority of Scripture. They have high view of Scripture, and based on their historical, exegetical, literary study through intensive hermeneutical engagement, they've come to this egalitarian position. And that made me think, okay, if it's not a conservative liberal issue, if it's not about whether or not you trust the Bible, then what really is going on here? And I'll tell you a funny story, James. I wrote my very first systematic theology paper, year one. I could pick any subject I wanted, and I picked Why Women Should Not Be Allowed to Be Leaders in Ministry.
0: No way. That was the title of your paper.
1: Something like that, yeah. That was the subject. Fast forward to my third year of my master Divinity. I wrote that paper on why women should be allowed to be leaders in ministry. The exact opposite. The exact opposite. I got an A on both papers, by the way. (laughs) But that showed actually um, the... I think that's a credit to Gordon Conwell for allowing me to, to do my thing in both those papers. Um, But it also shows the journey I went through to rethink these issues. And um, I will tell you, you know, I'm the same person I was back then as I am now. I I was driven by an agenda for that first paper. And I followed pretty much one line of thought. I didn't really dig in deep. I just kind of did a light working over of the argumentation. And... When I was trying to figure this issue out in my second and third year, I read dozens and dozens and dozens of books, many articles, um, and I explored all the key passages with as much depth as I could at that level of education I had. And the number one thing that affected me in that time was not that, oh geez, I was completely wrong and now these texts are all egalitarian no, the reason why we have this ongoing issue is that it's messy. Hmm. What I realized is I had believed in this firm edifice or complex or structure of complementarianism and believed it was solid. And what ended up happening is when I looked into the exegetical discussions of each problem text or text of focus, that confidence in that edifice eroded. It's not so much that everything flipped a switch and everything is completely different now. It's that I had assumed this solid exegetical structure and little pieces of doubt came into play in almost every text. Little things that undermine that complementarian view.
0: Now, let me jump in right there because a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know, like I grew up in a complementarian tradition and I knew the Bible well enough to know like, well... Uh, this is ridiculous, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, you know, Paul says very baldly, the plain reading of that text is that women shouldn't have authority over men or teach in church. And so can we talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously this is a, there's a lot of text that we could get into. Right. So, uh, but let's look at a couple of those uh, key ones because I think one of the challenges for adopting this position, is like kind of how you felt, is that you're surrendering a solid biblical hermeneutic that you're devaluing portions of Scripture that you don't agree with, and it becomes a cultural issue and not a biblical issue. And so help us kind of unpin that thinking within some of these texts. How might we think about, how might we take you know, passages like 1 Timothy 2 more holistically? How do we see them in a light that just doesn't say, oh, we just want to sweep that under the rug and pretend that it was never written?
1: Right. Let me back up really quick just to make a caveat, Uh, just so so we're clear. I'm not saying that I came to doubt Scripture or I came to doubt the ability to interpret Scripture faithfully. I, I only came to doubt a kind of simplistic approach to the Bible that strings together certain texts read in a certain way about men and women. but. I believe scripture is clear. I believe in what's called the perspicuity of scripture.
0: Oh, perspicuity means? Just
1: clarity. It means the clarity of scripture, that, that when you read the Bible, this divine revelation clearly communicates God's will for the gospel, for the world, for overcoming the problem of sin and for how humans should live. But on a variety of issues, there's some lack of clarity, like, for example, exactly how the world will end. Sure. Right? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's there's some fuzziness there. Exactly how baptism should be done. Exactly how communion should take place. Um, or foot washing. Or fasting. So so, on some of these smaller issues, there's going to be questions and discernment. But let's talk about some of these passages. Let me just give you a quick example, and then I'll talk about 1 Timothy. But, for example, um, one of the lines that I was taught as part of complementarianism, is called primogeniture. Whoa. Primogeniture means privilege of the firstborn. In the ancient world, um, you didn't have this meeting when someone, when a patriarch died, where you get together with a lawyer, you sit at a big conference table, and you divvy up the inheritance equally to all children. No, the firstborn male gets everything. Now, we can see that in Scripture with um, Jacob and Esau. Oh, sure. Right, in the yeah. birthright. Huge and, intrigue there. Right. There's, you know, you know one person gets everything, the other person gets nothing. That's how it works. And primogeniture is privilege of the firstborn. And I was taught um, sort of in, in my earlier uh, years of formation that um, Adam was created first, then Eve. Primogeniture, creation order, means he gets he gets the authority, the power, the privilege, of the firstborn. Um, but as I began to read in the literature and dig deeper, I was informed, and it helped me understand that even though primogeniture does exist in Scripture in some places, often enough the Bible overturns it. Sure. So, for example, David. Yeah. David, David, uh, you know, when 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 Saul was looking, uh, sorry, when uh, Samuel was looking. For the true king, he goes to uh, the house of Jesse, and he says to Jesse, uh, "Get all your get all your sons together. We're, we have a special party." And so Jesse gets all of his sons, lines them up in order from oldest to youngest, and and Samuel goes through, and, and God says, "No, no, 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 no." He said, but "Here's the oldest. Then the next one. The next one. the Next one. Well, do you have any more kids?" Oh yeah, David, you don't want him, he's the youngest. No, no, bring him in. Yeah. And guess who becomes the the greatest most beloved king of Israel? Is David, yeah. the youngest. Yeah. And we see that over and over again. Joseph, also one of the younger children. Yep. Uh, so so you know, it, it's interesting where you're you're taught these sort of principles or concepts, but scripture can get messy on these things. And you have this this overturning. Now Jesus himself is the firstborn of many. But God also has a preferential love for the least of these so so some of those pieces undermine assumptions we have about what people sometimes claim as solid or permanent patterns in scripture that that i feel like is a helpful example to to rethink some of those things um in terms of creation order itself um, yes in genesis 2 you have adam created and then eve but if you look at genesis 1 the pattern is reversed, and humanity ends up being the climax of the end of creation rather than treating it as some sort of first
0: is better. Yeah, oh, yeah. I had never thought of that. That In that situation, yeah, that the human, that day, the, the creation events on day six is the culmination or the climax of things, not that it wasn't the first thing that was made. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've often, I was talking with a complimentarian friend of mine, another pastor in town. And one of his sticking points was he felt that the issues around this tie back into a kind of creational theology. And so it's not culturally balanced, therefore it becomes global and universal and should be applied across all times and contexts. And so what I'm hearing you say is, like, there is certainly Adam in the in the creation narratives were was made first, uh, but Eve was not a, a secondary or even subservient member in that. And you had written recently about how you know how in that creation narrative especially unlike other ancient near eastern creation narratives the value that was placed on the woman in that context is is incredibly high and almost unexpected given what the ancient near eastern context out of which these creation narratives arrive
1: absolutely and you know from Genesis 1 and 2 we get two pieces of the puzzle of of Eve or woman one piece of the puzzle is Genesis 1 27 28 let them rule. The, 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 the clear indicator we get from the creation narrative is co-ruling, co-guardianship, co-stewardship of creation. If all we had was Genesis 1, we would assume, and I say this in my blog, but we would assume if the dinosaurs had questions, they wouldn't necessarily go to Adam first. They would assume either one would be fine. Whoever was closest... <laughs> Uh, Genesis 2, you do have Adam created. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He names the animals. He says none of them are worthy. And then Eve is created. And a couple things happen in that part of the narrative. One is um, she's taken from his side. This doesn't mean that she's derivative. It doesn't mean that she's lesser than. It means she's taken as his equal. The side would have been symbolic of not lower, not higher, but equal. Second, she's called to be a helper, but that term can be confusing to us because helper doesn't mean assistant in the like secretary kind of way. Helper literally means someone who helps someone else accomplish something. So for example, this is just a really mundane example. If my car breaks down the side of the road, if my car breaks down the road and I have to push it to the side of the road, If someone stops their car and gets out and pushes the car with me, that's the kind of help that, as simplistic as it
0: gets, that's the kind of help that this word is talking about. That person's not better than you, they're not worse than you, they're alongside. Right.
1: I'm not, it's not enough for me to do the work by myself. I need someone to help me. They might be stronger, they might be weaker. The only point of using that word is this person needs help. And so classically, you know, people have said, um, the same word that's used for helper in Genesis uh, 2 is used for God as one who helps mortals. And so it's not a subservient term, it's not a term about um, you know being Adam's assistant or something like that. I understand when complementarians use the word complementarian they're saying she complements him in the sense that she completes uh, his function uh, and I agree with that but uh, she completes it in, in, in what I think Genesis 1-2 is saying as completes a, a unified role of being co-guardians of creation. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how the creation narratives can help us understand Adam and Eve and therefore men and women generally as being equally commissioned and ordained to be able to rule together out of mutual submission to the one God. How does, let's look now at some of the New Testament texts, how do you parse through places like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy tw- uh, 2 and things like that as it comes to this issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing that I try to explain, because I teach a course here at the seminary called The Use and Abuse of the Bible.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: An Introduction to New Testament Hermeneutics. So it's a question of how we interpret the New Testament. Now, some people want to believe that biblical interpreters just read into the text whatever they want to. And so by talking about hermeneutics, we're, we're creating our own method that will allow us to believe whatever we want. Um, I guess you just have to take it on faith that that's not what I'm doing. But one of the first things I tell my students is, Paul's letters, he did not write them as systematic theologies. That's an important reminder. He wrote them as situational or occasional letters. Sure. We have to remember, he says things to Timothy like, "Oh, you're experiencing acid reflux. Oh, yeah. then drink less water and drink more wine." Sure. Bring my
0: cloak and my, you know, from right. as kind of the right. Yeah. These
1: are not, you know, systematic theologies. Now, that doesn't make them not true, but it means that we have to make sure we interpret them in context. What's going on in the church? So, here's just an example I like to give to help one understand the importance of context. Um, I used to live in Seattle at the top of a hill. The bottom of the hill was the elementary school, where I'd take my kindergarten daughter and I had a um, two-year-old son. Uh, And so I'd walk her to school and him with with her and then when we're going home I would have to drag him up the hill. He didn't want to walk. Now there's some people that play on the playground, which is between the two, every day and the only thing they know about me is me dragging my son and yelling at him every day as I'm pulling him up that hill they must think I'm a horrible,
0: Worst dad <laughs> belligerent,
1: ever. impatient father because they only see these snapshots of me in that one type of circumstance but they see it all of the time now if you take a text like Galatians Paul is really angry in that letter right? Very. And, and it'd be dangerous to say that's the his only mode. So when we take texts like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, we need to know there were some really messed up things going on in that church, just as there are messed up things sometimes going on in churches today. We don't really get to see much of Paul giving a kind of typical sermon for a church that's not experiencing any problems, and he's just sort of saying really nice theological things. We We get a little bit of that maybe in Ephesians, but in most of his letters he is solving problems, and so it's important to know that. I'll just say a couple quick things about 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. So, 1 Corinthians 11, there's this language of head. Sure. Right? People want to gather from that that there is this theology of headship. First of all, headship is a theological construct that we've created.
0: Not a biblical term.
1: It's not. It may be right, it may be wrong, but it's important at first just to recognize that the word headship isn't used there it's a concept that we bring. Like Trinity. Trinity is not used in the Bible. I believe in the Trinity but it's not used. So we have to be careful when people say headship is in this text. The word head is. The problem is we don't know exactly what Paul means when he uses the word head. I'm not trying to be slick or rhetorical when I say that. He's using it as a metaphor but we can't assume that the way we use the metaphor today is the same way we use it back then. They used it back then. So for example if I say I'm the head of this organization That means I'm the leader of this organization. In modern English, head equals authoritative leader is the most common way we use that metaphorically today. In the ancient world, they didn't exactly use the word kephale, which is a word for head in Greek. They didn't quite use it that way. Sometimes we see that. It's pretty rare. It can mean a variety of other things. Some scholars think it could mean source as a metaphor. Some scholars think it could mean representative or prominence. Um, so we have to wrap our heads. We know what the word head means biologically, but when used metaphorically, we don't quite know exactly what it means. What I think is going on in that text is that in the Corinthian church, women were doing things that were subversive. Uh, men were doing some things that were subversive. There was some genderized, um, misbehavior going on. I think probably on both ends. And so Paul has to do some kind of putting them in their place, not one or the other, but both. So he says, um, uh, man did not come from woman, but woman from man, because he's talking about the rib of Adam. But then he says, right after that, he says, but we know that, you know, men actually come from women and, you know, He he plays both sides in the text, and I think we read it too narrowly if we just think he's only doing one thing. If you look at the wider context of that passage and 1 Corinthians 14, his primary concern isn't to have women be submissive. In fact, he never actually says women should be submissive to men. He says they should be submissive. But I take that as he means submissive to God, and in the context of this community, submissive to the greater orderliness and harmony of the church.
0: That whole First Corinthians 11 through 14 passage gets summed up there in the end of 14 where Paul says, let everything be done in decency and in order. That's right. It seems like that becomes a kind of heuristic to read back then everything that he was trying to say through the spiritual gifts of 11 into 12 and mm-hmm. into, you know, that kind of thing. So that's an interesting point to think about how, you know, contextually what Paul was trying to address in the Corinthian situation, he might... If you would have asked Paul, Paul, are you intending here in this, in this letter to write an edict for all time and all places, he might look at you a little confused and say, no, I'm trying to solve a problem like what you mentioned um, with this particular church by reminding them of the greater authority that's over each of them, which is Jesus Christ.
1: That's right, James. And, and, and something that was probably a big turning point for me in seminary was not just studying the problem text like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, but actually paying attention to where Paul talks about named women oh, and what he says about them. Romans 16. Romans 16, Philippians 4, Colossians, 1 Corinthians 1, and a number of places. We don't often recognize he's talking about women because we don't always, ad- in English, we don't always know their names. Oh, sure, yeah. So we don't always know he's talking about women. Like Nympha. We don't always know if he's, you know, we don't, we don't exactly know that name. We can sense it's a woman, but we, we get we get these little bits of information. But sometimes that information is really important. Yeah. And, and how we translate some of the terms. This is where translation comes into play.
0: Sure. The Junia controversy for many years.
1: Yes, but also Phoebe. In Romans 16, Phoebe is referred to Paul as a diakonos. And there's a variety of ways we can translate that. I think some translations have chosen helper, uh, which is not very accurate, I don't think. Some have chosen servant, which is more accurate, but maybe not what Paul's trying to communicate in that particular instance. We have to know that the word diakonos can be translated deacon, which is what we get in the pastoral epistles. So he could be referring to as a deacon, but I don't think most people know that our English word minister is tied back to diakonos. So you could refer to Phoebe as a minister. Um, It would be not that unusual given that's the term that diakonos is the term Paul uses for himself.
0: Certainly to the woman he's entrusting his probably most significant letter to a church he's never been to before.
1: Yeah, absolutely, James. I don't know if a lot of people know that Paul's commendation of Phoebe in Romans 16, virtually all scholars, including many complementarians, believe that Phoebe would have been the letter carrier. There was no postal service. There's no UPS, FedEx. Um, So you sent a letter with a trusted friend. There were no official channels to send a personal letter. So you sent it with what we call courier. Um, a letter carrier or a courier and Paul uses different couriers uh, throughout a, throughout his different letters um, usually they're people that he works very very closely like Timothy or Epaphroditus people he respects people he knows that are going to be able to um, faithfully deliver this letter and probably be a resource for Paul's thoughts on the subject matters in the letter
0: that was something that i think witherington pointed out in his commentary on romans was phoebe would perhaps even be the person to read the letter aloud in the churches and then answer questions that the congregation might have and explain paul's thinking further and that's a it's a high and entrusted place to give to a woman in that context
1: absolutely um on whether or not she read the letter there's some academic debate on that but her letter delivery is almost certain and Paul mentioned in there, she's sticking around. She has work to do. We don't know what that work is. Is it professional to her occupation, whatever that is? Maybe. Is it ministry related? It could be. Uh, many people think it is. Whatever it is, she's sticking around. And whatever responses they have to the letter, whether she read it or not, they're not gonna send another letter. They're gonna ask her. Yeah. And uh, so many people think she's the first interpreter of romance. And, and I have to believe that if Paul didn't trust women with this kind of task of interpreting Scripture authoritatively under his authority, he would have sent Phoebe and someone else. Um, he commends her as, as a leader and sent Crea. Um, so it's picking up on some of those pieces. Yodi and Syntyche are two women mentioned in Philippians chapter 4. In the ancient world, I spent last summer, maybe two summers ago, I spent a couple of months reading everything I possibly could on what daily life was like in the first century Roman world. I received a, a large grant from the Wabash Center to do this research. I actually created a first century role-playing game that I use with my students, where you're assigned a character with a background and you have a story and all the stuff. There's like ten different characters, and you're assigned an identity, and you have to, you know, go through all these experiences. So I studied what slavery was like, what it's like for women, what it's like for people different economic and social and and uh, uh, you know elite classes versus freed people, and what I learned, part of what I learned from that experience, is women are often unnamed; they're not talked about in literature. They're not talked about in fiction, but they're also not talked about in regular letters. Um, and they're definitely not talked about by name. Their lives were just not very important to most men in the ancient world. You just don't name women, and you don't talk about them. Women sometimes did important things, and we can talk about that later. But um, to have Paul name two women in a letter where he doesn't seem to name any men. He, he mentions Clement. We don't know Clement's story or whether he's there or somewhere else. But we know more... Let me put it this way. We know more about the Philippian women than we do about the Philippian men.
0: And Be- given the first century context, that's actually tremendously important.
1: It's tremendously important. And you mentioned Romans 16, where he talks about virtually all women. Yeah. It's incredible, actually. And there's a, if you Google... Uh, there's an online lecture by Beverly Gaventa on women in Romans. Um, When I heard that lecture about seven, eight, six, seven years ago, it blew my mind, because she really walks through who these women could have been. He talks about, she talks about Phoebe, she talks about Junia, and so it was really during seminary and after, but during seminary, not only looking at what Paul says about uh, women and men, but Paul's engagement and appreciation of named women. Let me tell you something that's really stuck with me, James. And and I think this is a big deal. He says about Andronicus and Junia, who we now know are probably a married couple. Yeah. He says, not only are they noteworthy among the apostles, which it could mean that they are apostles. Yes. Little a apostles. Yes. It could mean they're, they're important or noteworthy to the apostles. I don't want to get into that right now because... I think it could, could go either way. Sure. A lot, I have, of, I have a lot of ink
0: has been spilled there.
1: Yes. But what I think people often miss is that Paul says, they shared my imprisonment. You have to ask yourself, there were no petty jails. If you get put in prison, you're, you're being put in prison. You might face, an, you might face execution. But you, you have to know, James, that imprisonment was not itself a punishment in the ancient world imprisonment was a holding place for a sentence, usually a big, a big issue. So either you were released, you were sentenced to death, or you were exiled. You don't pay parking tickets having gone to a Roman prison. So the question you have to ask yourself is, not was not why was Paul in prison, we know why Paul went to prison. Usually Paul went to prison because he was an enemy of the state. Not only why was Andronicus in prison, but why was Junia in prison? If she bakes cookies or she plays a behind-the-scenes role in ministry, whatever that is, you know, she drives the horse or whatever, Sure. Um, why is she put in prison? She has to be an enemy of the state. I mean, there's no way to look at it. She has to be considered a threat. I, I, I really don't know why else she would be put in that situation.
0: I think one of the ways that if you kind of zoom out and look at all this, because we spent a lot of time talking about how women are treated, especially in Paul's letters, and we haven't spent any time thinking about how Jesus has treated women. We could go through the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Mary Magdalene in the the gospel accounts, that one of the things that we think about is, I I have to think about the principle of where you start defines, uh, influences where you end up. So if you start in your New Testament understanding with First Timothy two or First Corinthians fourteen, especially your understanding of Paul, then then your interpretation is skewed away from valuing what's being uh, demonstrated in Romans sixteen and Philippians four, and these other places where Paul's doing some very unusual and countercultural things to highlight the women and to highlight the value of the women who are around him. Mm-hmm. I have to think about, um, you know, Galatians 3 is a kind of a classic egalitarian text where, you know, like that in light of the new age of the Spirit, there's no longer slave or free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, mm-hmm. in which those dividing lines of separation that kept people apart from each other, mm-hmm. Paul now sees that in the Spirit, that those, like your primary allegiance now is as a child of God. And so in the churches, that those dynamics, which previously created hierarchy, are now being brought into you know tremendous equality under under one God, so I'm interested in just kind of thinking about just a simple think of imagine if we started in a different location, imagine mm-hmm. if we started in a very what seems to be very pro woman or very pro female experience like what we see in Romans 16, how that colors our interpretation of the rest of these issues. I want to, we could talk about all of these texts for a long time, but I want to zoom out here a little bit just to ask another question as we draw to a close. This is one of those areas where, as we've talked about before, you know, Piper and Grudem and Keller stand on one side of an issue. You know, Fee and Witherington and 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 Keener stand on another side of the issue, and yet all of these are people who we know and love, whose books we read, whose tremendous value is given from. And it feels I know, especially for me, I'm not an expert like you. Uh, there's a sense of like, how am I supposed to disagree with these people who are so much smarter than me? Can you speak to a little bit of? an issue that I think about is is these aren't entirely clear. One of the reasons this conversation is still going on is that very smart, well meaning people can look at the same set of texts, look at the first century context in which they're written, and arrive at different conclusions. What do you think that suggests about your previous point or the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture? And and what kind of helpful tactics would you suggest an, a, a Bible school student take when and kind of addressing the nuance or some uncertainty that may be present in scripture
1: yeah that's a good question and um, you know I would respond a few different ways first of all um, there's a kind of motto that I learned in seminary that's kind of stuck with me and it's it's you know from many many years ago but it's uh, unity in the essentials uh, diversity in the non-essentials and charity in all things yes and so what that requires is generosity in conversation, um, a listening ear, a respectful listening ear, and um, giving credit where credit's due, being honest about where the, the messy parts are, where, you know, I don't know. There, There's a, a scholar I've been following named uh, Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, she's a pastor uh, and Christian leader. And she says this in a podcast. Um, she says, on either side of this debate, you can't be 100% sure. You can just be 80% sure at best, whether you're on this side or the other. And so uh, that what I often tell my students is um, my faith and my confidence in my position on women in ministry, um, it's a belief. It's not a fact. It's a belief. And I called it so help me God, uh, that, that sometimes I call this the gupta wager, that I'm willing to go to, to meet Jesus. And I'd rather say, I may be wrong, but I decided to support 60% of the church. I mean, if women make up, let's say, 60% of the church in America, I, what am I risking on either side? because I don't know if I'm right. I'm just guessing based on my study. I think you have a lot more to lose by barring women from ministry than you do from allowing them. Now, the other side doesn't believe that. They think it undermines the church and it you know, hurts men and hurts women. But by my conviction, that's what I believe. Another thing I'll mention is something from Paul Ricoeur called the second naivete. The second, you know, it's bad to be naive. A naive person is a fool that doesn't study things, right? It's, it's, it's just poor practice to have, have a solid opinion when you haven't studied it. But a second naivete means there's three stages. There's simple naivete. I don't know anything, but I have an opinion about it. There's complexity where I've looked at all the mess. If you stop there, you give up and you lose conviction and you give up on the mission of the church and you give up on the Bible. Uh-huh. But if you keep moving forward, you say, I've studied the issues, I've looked at all the dirty details, and I'm going to step forward in faith with open hands that I could change my mind. I could change my mind. I I don't think I will. I could, and I need to be open to that. I need to be open to being wrong. I think of it like when we're interpreting Scripture, it's like renovating a house. The house is always structurally solid, but you may renovate every single room in the house. Right? And so... Scripture itself is solid. My evangelical faith is solid, but where I'm always so anyway. Second, naivete means I have to move forward to a new path forward, where I'm just going to walk by faith in some of these issues, and I'm going to live by conviction on the far side. So there, there's a there's a um, there's a famous quote, uh, and the, the name of the guy will come come to me later. But he says, uh, "I don't give a fig about simplicity." on this side of complexity. Yeah. But I would give my right arm for simplicity on the far side of complexity. Sure. And what that means is on any of the controversial issues, do your homework, do your study. Recognize you can't be 100% sure. And and, and then and then just kind of go with your gut and move forward giving grace to others because you know that you can't be 100% correct.
0: right. One thing that I think about when you talk about The simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity is how when there are very complex issues um, to then turn around and treat it as though it were a simple issue for which there are pant answers. I've heard it said that like for every complex issue there's a solution that's simple and obvious and wrong. (laughs) And so what I appreciate about you is having done all of the deep work and the homework to understand the text in its context. You've arrived at a conviction, a belief, and you've communicated very clearly via your blog and, uh, you know, many other channels. Um, But you're still allowing for that sense of, like like you say, we might have to remodel this space again. Mm -hmm. We might have to continue to keep learning. We might have to continue to keep paying attention to people who don't necessarily arrive at the same conviction. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the tone that you've set here and in other contexts where you're trying to show the work that you've done and the convictions that you hold while still engaging it as though it's still a very complex issue for which other well-meaning people can arrive at a different position. And I just want to appreciate you for having, you know, of, of waving a flag that appreciates the nuance, the messy middle, without trying to push everything to the isolated extremes when it's only one way to think about things and you've engaged people in the middle there, I think in a very ironic and peaceful way. So anyway, I want to appreciate you a lot for that, uh, Professor, and uh, very grateful for the time that we've had to sp- spend in the context of this conversation. Any final words of wisdom to young Bible school students, um, you know, wanting to be faithful, understanders, and students of the Word of God?
1: Yeah, well thanks, it's been great. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, what I tell people is, um, one of the one of the mistakes I made early on in seminary was assuming people's motives Uh, assuming they have a dark heart or even evil intentions for what they're doing or what they're thinking that they're quote unquote liberal the most important one of the most important factors for me in seminary was not I didn't start by studying the Bible texts that came later I started by listening to women that's what actually started the the move for me was seeing Master Divinity women who, once I got to know them, they cared deeply about the Bible. They had a conservative evangelical faith. They too doubted whether it was the right place for them and the right um, path for them. They wanted to study all the relevant texts deeply and obey and respect whatever the Bible taught. And so I would say if you're wondering on one side or the other, talk to women sit down, talk to women, talk to women pastors about their experiences, talk about their study of the Bible, ask, be a learner, ask open and honest questions, and recognize that um, you know, we make assumptions about people's motives without actually asking them. That's a really important place to start.
0: Wonderful. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: So if you Google my name, Nije Gupta, um, you'll come across my blog, it's called Crux Sola, which comes from Martin Luther, it means the cross is our only theology. But I blog at Crux Sola uh, and I'm on social media on Twitter and Facebook, so you can uh, look for me there as well and say hi.
0: Okay. Professor Nijay, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us about this. Really respect you and your work a lot. Appreciate the time that you've taken here.
1: My pleasure, James. Thanks.
0: Hey, friends, and thanks again for joining us on this episode with Nij Gupta of The Curiosity Project. Uh, Nijay serves as the Associate Professor of New Testament Theology at Portland Seminary. Dr Gupta has written commentaries on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Colossians, the Lord's Prayer. He's the editor-in-chief of the Bulletin for Biblical Research. He's a member of the Society of New Testament Studies. He serves on the doctoral faculty of Trinity College in Bristol, England. Guy's great. I hope that you really got a chance to hear not only his content, but his tone, which I think is so important in conversations like this where there is more than one side to the issue. So I really appreciate the clarity and the levity that he brought to that issue as well. Um, if you would like to be participating in more kinds of conversations like these where we tackle difficult issues with a aim for peacefulness and understanding, can be by College exists to help you learn to love and lead like Jesus. I encourage you to check us out if you are interested in pursuing a two-year degree in Associates in Christian Ministry that will enable you to graduate debt-free, partner with many other four-year schools to get a fully accredited four-year degree, um, and be able to move on with a biblical foundation and uh, biblical studies and leadership skills that will serve you in any capacity. You can look us up more on canbybiblecollege.org, where our fall 2019 classes are available for registration. You guys are great, and remember, Jesus loves you. Have a good day.